Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 38. We will read the entire chapter. That is the sermon text for today. And then we will go to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verses 11 through 22. That is the New Testament reading for today. Exodus 38, Ephesians 2. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Exodus 38, verse 1. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. He made all its utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze, under its ledge, extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. And he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks and the pillars and the fillets were of silver. And for the north side, there were hangings of a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks and the pillars and the fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of fifty cubits. Their ten pillars and their ten bases, the hooks and the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the front to the east, fifty cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate were fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side... On both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of fifteen cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twined linen, and the bases for the pillars were of bronze, and the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals was also of silver, and all their pillars, all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and in purple and in scarlet yarns with fine twined linen. It was twenty cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number. Their four bases were of bronze and their hooks of silver and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver. And all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around were of bronze. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses, and with him Oholiab, the son of Ahizamech, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the gold that was used for the work in all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary, a becca ahead 
that is, half a shekel, by the shekel of the sanctuary. For everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward, for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, a hundred bases for the hundred, for the hundred talents, a talent a base. And of the 1,775 1, shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils of the altar, the bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, and all the pegs of the tabernacle, and all the pegs around the court. Let us go now to Ephesians chapter 2 and read verses 11 through 22. This is Paul the Apostle writing to the new covenant people of God, the church living in Ephesus. This church primarily consisted not of Jews, but of Gentiles. And he says to them, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Brothers and sisters, what period of time is Paul referring to here except the time of the Old Covenant, the time prior to Christ's coming? I will read it again. He says, Remember that you, Gentiles, were at that time separated from who? Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create himself in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, and I will note here he is referring to Jews and Gentiles together, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens." But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he bless the preaching of it this morning. 
I do hope that you've been edified by these sermons that I've preached on the building of the tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel as recorded for us here in these final chapters of the book of Exodus. As you know, I've taken a particular approach. I've considered the tabernacle in detail and those instructions that were given to Moses back in Exodus 25 through 30. But now we are stepping back from the tabernacle to ask a more general question. How did the tabernacle proclaim the good news through its symbolism? How did the tabernacle proclaim good news through its symbolism? I would like to, at this point, make two clarifying remarks before going on to our passage for today. One, when I say that the tabernacle proclaimed good news, I do not mean that the tabernacle was itself the substance or subject of good news. I hope that you can see the distinction that I am making here. When I say that the tabernacle proclaimed good news, I do not mean that the tabernacle was itself the substance or subject of the good news. What I mean is this, the good news that the tabernacle proclaimed, symbolically speaking, was not about itself ultimately, but was about Jesus Christ. In a symbolic way, the tabernacle proclaimed this message that God had not left men and women hopeless in sin. He had not abandoned his temple building project, which Adam failed to complete when he broke the covenant of works, but would complete it in another way, namely through Israel and the Messiah that would be brought into the world through them. When we consider the tabernacle of old covenant Israel in the context of the whole story that is told within the Bible, the story of God's creation and covenant, the story of man's fall into sin, of God's promise to redeem sinners through the seed of the woman and the offspring of Abraham, and the consummation of all things at Christ's return, then it becomes clear that the tabernacle that was given to Old Covenant Israel was not the substance or subject of good news, but was instead a herald of good news in a symbolic way. The subject and substance of the good news proclaimed by the tabernacle was and is Jesus the Christ. I did pause in my reading of Ephesians chapter 2 to make emphasis on, about something in that text. When Paul was speaking to those Gentiles, those Gentile Christians in Ephesus, he said at one time, you know, before Christ came and under the old covenant, you were separated from, from who? Christ, he said. Isn't that incredible to think? Christ had not yet been born, had he? Then what did he mean? What did Paul mean when he said that the Gentiles were at that time, that is under the old covenant, separated from Christ? What Paul means is what he says in so many different ways in his writings. Christ was present under the old covenant. And Israel had access to him before he was even born. How so? Through the promises that were entrusted to them. Through the prophecies that were uttered amongst them through the types that were present in their midst, and also through these shadows, these shadows that look forward to the coming of Christ. Israel had access to Christ as they looked upon this tabernacle, brothers and sisters. This tabernacle proclaimed good news, but it was not the temple or tabernacle that was the substance of the good news. Instead, the tabernacle was a herald of good news, and the substance was and is Jesus Christ. To say it differently... Never did the tabernacle say, come to me for the forgiveness of sins and to be made right with God for all eternity. Or to put it in another way, never did the tabernacle say, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said that. And that is my point. When the eternal Son of God assumed a human nature and tabernacled amongst us, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And by the way, that has always been the case. That is not only the case now under the new covenant, it was also the case under the old covenant. Jesus the Christ, the promised Messiah, is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one has ever come to the Father except through Him. While the tabernacle of old made a way for sinners under the old covenant to approach God in worship, the way into the presence of the Father was closed off, not open wide, as the veil in the temple showed. The tabernacle provided a perpetual reminder of sins. It reminded the worshiper of their alienation from God because of sin. But it also pointed forward to the Christ who would offer himself up as a sacrifice once for all for the forgiveness of sins. It is through him and through the covenant that he mediates that the way to full reconciliation with the Father is opened wide. Brothers and sisters, the tabernacle was a sign which pointed to the way of salvation. And you know how signs work. Signs point away from themselves to things that are substantial. That is what a sign does. If you are running low on gas while driving on a dark and lonely highway, you will feel a great sense of relief when you see a gas station sign glowing off in the distance, won't you? The sign brings you relief, not because it in and of itself, has the power to meet your need, namely fuel, but because it points to the thing that can meet your need in a substantial way. In this case, the gas station sign brings you relief because it points to the reality that there, at that location, is a gas station and tanks containing the fuel that you so desperately need to continue on in your journey. And this is what I mean that when I say that the tabernacle was a sign. It proclaimed the good news, but it was not itself the substance of the good news. The substance was and, in, and is Christ. The tabernacle was meant to point to Him ultimately, because He is the one who can meet our spiritual needs. Through faith in Him, that is, through faith in the Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins, a clean conscience, and full reconciliation with the Father. This is what the writer of the Hebrew says, the writer of the book of Hebrew says. In 10.1 we read, listen carefully to this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every, every year, make perfect those who draw near, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, that is to say, in the sacrifices that were offered at this tabernacle and later temple, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I wonder if you could see the point that the writer of the Hebrews is making, brothers and sisters. Here he warns us, not to misinterpret the tabernacle and later temple, nor the sacrifices that were offered by the priests of Aaron there. Those sacrifices did not take away sin. They did not perfect the worshiper. They did not 
cleanse the conscience. Quite the opposite, the sacrifices functioned as a reminder of sin as they were offered up continuously. Paul says they were a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It is in verse 5 that we learn who the true form of these realities is. And I quote again from Hebrews, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then He said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Um, These are offered according to the law. Then he adds, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Lord willing. We will study the book of Hebrews in detail someday. I'll consider this text much more slowly. But for now, I simply want you to see the way in which the writer speaks of the Old Covenant and the sacrifices that were offered at the tabernacle and later temple. Those animal sacrifices could not perfect the worshiper. They could not cleanse the conscience. And for this reason, they were offered continuously over and over and over again. But this in Hebrews 10 is contrasted with Christ who offered himself up how many times? Once, once for all. The tabernacle and the animal sacrifices offered there were a shadow of the good things to come. Christ, that is to say the broken body of Christ and his shed blood, is the form or substance of these realities. Through faith in Him, we have the real forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of our consciences before God. So, it's just so crucial uh, to a proper understanding of the Christian faith. Brothers and sisters, when we consider the tabernacle of old, we must consider it properly. It was a sign. Salvation was not made possible through it. It pointed forward to Christ or to trust in Him and to Him alone. And that was true of the saints who lived under the old covenant as well. I hope you can see why I've made this clarifying remark. As I speak about the good news of the tabernacle and its features, I do not want to be misunderstood. While the tabernacle proclaimed good news, it was not the source or substance of the good news. Jesus Christ was and is the substance. He is the true form of these realities, to use the language of Hebrews 10. Through faith in Him, we have the forgiveness of sins, full reconciliation with the Father, and the hope of life everlasting. And that was true under the Old Covenant, just as it is true now. They looked forward to Christ, we looked back to His finished work, received, and we receive Him by faith. The second clarifying remark is related to the first. While there is a sense in which I want to minimize the tabernacle and to maximize Christ, I do not wish to in any way speak against the tabernacle, or to demean its design or purpose. After all, this tabernacle was given to Israel by who? God gave it to them. It was given to them by God. It was constructed according to the design shown to Moses by God on the mountain. So it was a copy of heavenly realities. The worship that was conducted there was according to the command of God. So we must say that the tabernacle was good, brothers and sisters. We should not demean it in any way while we minimize it to maximize Christ. But it was only good, it is only good, 
so long as we interpret it properly. It, it, it was good for the Old Covenant people of God only so long as it was used according to God's purpose and design. And certainly many erred in this regard under the Old Covenant. Many misinterpreted the tabernacle. Many misused the tabernacle. I am not denying that. But if we look to the tabernacle and understand its design and its purpose, then we are to say that it was a very good thing. It was a gift to the Old Covenant people of God and even to us as we look back upon it. You know, as a kid, I could remember my dad telling me not to use a wrench as a hammer. A wrench is good. It's not, isn't a wrench a good thing? Sure, it is a good thing. A wrench is a very good thing. But a wrench is not designed to drive nails. A hammer is designed to do that. And so it is um, with the law of Moses in general and with the tabernacle in particular. They are good things provided that they are used appropriately. Interpreted appropriately, used appropriately for the task for which God designed them. You know, when you use a a wrench as a hammer, uh, you fail on two fronts. You do damage to the wrench, don't you? And you also don't really do a very good job either. You're going to end up with the bent nail. Use a wrench as a wrench. Use a hammer as a hammer. They're both good, provided that they're used according to the design. And I am saying we must be very careful to do this with God's law in general, with the law of Moses in general, and with the tabernacle in particular. The law of Moses, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the Aaronic priesthood were not designed to provide for the actual forgiveness of sins, for the cleansing of the conscience, and to reconcile uh, sinners to God for all eternity. Now, only Jesus Christ can do that through His finished work. That was His purpose. That was His work. But this does not make the law of Moses, the old covenant tabernacle, and the sacrificial system administered by priests bad, does it? No, they were good. They were good. So we are to regard the law as good, provided that it is used lawfully, that is to say, according to its purpose and design. That is what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. Eight. So what was the design and purpose of the tabernacle and the sacrifices that were offered there? Why did God give this thing to Israel? Why did He command them to worship here? Why did He give them the, the priesthood and the sacrificial system? We have already considered how the tabernacle proclaimed Christ in a shadowy, symbolic way. And to that we must add that it did provide a way for the Old Covenant people of God to draw near to God in worship and to be cleansed from their sins in a superficial, earthly, and temporary way. Think of it as the people of Israel sinned against God or became unclean according to the ceremonial laws of Moses under that covenant of works that was made with them. They were given a way to draw near to God, to be cleansed at the tabernacle according to His command. In this way, they would be restored to a clean and upright status according to the terms of the Old Covenant. This, what I have just said, is very different from claiming that the blood of bulls and goats actually atoned for their sins. How can animal blood atone for human sin? It cannot. But those with true faith in Old Covenant Israel, those who were circumcised not merely of the flesh but of the heart, looked beyond the tabernacle. They looked beyond the animal sacrifices and the priests of Aaron, and they saw Christ. 
the true Israel of God, the true sons and daughters of Abraham, or the remnant, if you prefer, believed in the promises of God concerning the coming Messiah as they came to the tabernacle to worship according to God's commandment. And they, like us, were justified by faith, faith in the promised Messiah. So then, as you hear me minimizing the tabernacle to maximize Christ, do not misunderstand. I am not demeaning the tabernacle or diminishing its goodness. I am saying that if the tabernacle and temple of Old Covenant Israel are to be appreciated as good, they must be appreciated according to God's design for them. To state the matter another way, if the temple that stood in Jesus' day could speak, it would have said what John the Baptist said concerning his relation to Jesus Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. Think of that. What did John the Baptist, the the last of the Old Covenant prophets, say concerning the Messiah? He must increase, and I must decrease. And John the Baptist, in a sense, spoke for the entire Old Covenant system in that moment. He spoke for all of the Old Covenant prophets. He spoke for the Old Covenant itself, for the temple, for the sacrificial system of it, for the priesthood. He, as the last of the Old Covenant prophets, spoke for all of them, saying, He, Christ, must increase and I must decrease. In fact, this is our purpose. This is our design. This is our mission to give way to the Christ. And indeed, we see that as the very thing that happened after Christ finished His work, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and sent the Holy Spirit. These old covenant forms of worship passed away. They were abolished, not because they were bad, but because their purpose had had been fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. Let us now go to our text and consider the good news proclaimed by the courtyard, the altar of burnt offering, and the bronze laver, or the bronze basin. These three things, the courtyard in general, the altar of burnt offering, and the bronze laver that were placed within the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. First, the courtyard. I've said before that the courtyard of the tabernacle symbolized the earth in general. The Holy of Holies symbolized the heavenly throne room of God where He manifests His glory before the angels. The holy place symbolized the visible heavens where the sun, moon, and stars reside, And the courtyard signified the earth with its dry land, mountains, and seas. So then, the tabernacle was a little miniature version of creation. Remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel was a little replica of that. This is review for you. I've said this all before in greater detail. I've also encouraged you to think of the original creation with Eden, the mountain of God, and the garden of Eden, and the rest of the earth being Uh, symbolized by this tabernacle too. This courtyard signified the earth. Notice it was the least holy part of this holy tabernacle. What were the metals used out in this courtyard? Not gold, but silver and bronze. That is significant. So there is a progression here. We move in this holy tabernacle from least holy to most holy. And the use of these different uh, metals signifies that. Notice that 
This was the place where the common people of Israel were invited to assemble. The priests and the common people of Israel were invited into this courtyard. Only the priests could minister in the holy place, and only the high priest could enter the holiest place once a year on the Day of Atonement, not without blood. But all of Israel was invited to enter the courtyard. And as the people of Israel entered the courtyard of the tabernacle and walked past the altar of burnt offerings and the bronze basin, which is elsewhere called a sea, S-E-A, which contained water for the purification of the priests, it would have reminded them of the mountains and seas of the earth, and especially of Sinai and the Red Sea, through which Israel had passed when they were redeemed from Egypt. Can you visualize this? You walk into the courtyard, and there the earth in general is signified, and you have this mountain standing in the midst of it, this bronze altar. Uh, There it is, and animal sacrifices are offered up on it, and smoke rises from it. It sounds kind of like Sinai, doesn't it? The smoke rising from the mountain uh, of God. And there you see this large basin of water made of bronze. It's the mountains and seas of, of the earth. I think also the people of Israel would have been reminded of their redemption from Egypt as they walked out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea and came eventually to Mount Sinai. Uh, There's lots of symbolism here, of course. What did the courtyard communicate to Israel and to all who are considered who considered it? That's really what we're asking in this in this sermon series, right? Especially as we consider the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus. What did it communicate? What did the presence of this thing communicate? It communicated that the God of heaven had not abandoned people on earth in their sin, but had determined to make a way for them to draw near to Him. The symbolism ought to be very clear to you. God did not have to give Israel a tabernacle. God did not have to promise to bring this tabernacle and temple that He offered Adam in the beginning that was forfeited by Him to consummation. But He did. He promised to do so and He gave this little tabernacle to Israel as a gift so that we might see in a symbolic way that God was doing this work. The people of Israel were invited to draw near to God, to His throne room. And they entered into the courtyard and saw the earth there signified by this courtyard. God did not abandon sinners. Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden They were barred from the holy place, but God was merciful and promised to provide a way through the offspring of the woman, through the seed of Abraham. When the people entered this courtyard and beheld the bronze altar and the bronze laver, and beyond them the holy place and most holy place, it was a reminder of the mercy and grace of God and the way that He had promised to open up for them and for us. Let us now consider the altar of burnt offering This bronze altar measuring about seven and a half feet square by four and a half feet tall was the first thing the people would have seen when they entered the courtyard. The bloody altar of burnt offering would have reminded them of the Passover lamb that was slain on the night they were delivered from Egypt. Israel was shielded from the wrath of God by the blood of the lamb as the angel of death passed over All who had the blood of the Lamb spread upon the doorposts of the house were spared. The firstborn in all the homes, not shielded by the blood of the Lamb, was slain. The message is this. If you wish to draw near to Yahweh, you must be covered by the blood of the Lamb. If you wish to draw near to Yahweh, you must be covered by the blood of the Lamb. 
It was on this altar that the blood of bulls and goats was shed, and burnt offerings were offered up to God. These sacrifices were offered up for sins committed, and also out of gratitude to God for His blessings. The symbolism was clear. If sinful men and women were to approach Yahweh, they must be cleansed by blood. Can you see it? You enter the courtyard gates, and the very first thing that you're confronted with is an altar covered with blood. Beyond that, there's the bronze laver. Beyond that, there's the holy place. And then there's the most holy place. You're drawing near to God, are you not? You're coming near to Him to worship. But now that man has fallen into sin, what must we do? We must draw near to God and worship, being covered by blood. What did this animal blood do for the worshiper under the old covenant? First, let us remember what it could not do. It could not atone for human sin to the cleansing of the conscience, to bring about true and eternal reconciliation with God. These animals could not be offered up before God as a once-for-all substitute for a sinful man. And for this reason, these sacrifices were offered up continually. They were offered up continually. If you were to sin against God, you were to bring a sacrifice and offer it up to the Lord to cover that sin so that you might be restored within Old Covenant Israel. And then if you sinned again, you had to do it again. You see, this was about being restored in the covenant. This was not about eternal forgiveness. So we must remember what these animal sacrifices could not do. Two, we must say what they did do. They foreshadowed the Messiah, the eternal Son of God incarnate, who would come to live, die, rise, and ascend for sinners. He was able to atone for the sins of His people, really and truly, For He was the God-man. His blood has the power to save, for He is the God-man. By His shed blood, through faith in Him, our consciences are cleansed. For we in Him are justified and reconciled to the Father, for He is the God-man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I am saying that the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant reminded the worshipers of their sins and their need for a substitute to make atonement for the sins. And they directed the worshiper to look Not to the animal blood, but to the blood of the promised Messiah, the eternal Son of God, incarnate. Three, these animal sacrifices also provided cleansing for the old covenant people of God in a superficial, earthly, and temporary way. As the Israelites broke God's covenant law, they incurred guilt and they became unclean. Remember that the old Mosaic covenant was like the covenant of works made with Adam in the garden, in that it too was a covenant of works. Do you remember this? We compared the two things earlier in our study of the book of Exodus. The old Mosaic covenant and the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden were similar. Uh, They were both covenants of works. If Israel obeyed, they would be blessed in the land. If they disobeyed, they would be cast out of the land just as Adam was cast out of the Garden of Eden. Here is the difference, though, and it is a very important difference. God was merciful to Israel. He was patient with them, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that is to say covenant loyalty. He would have to be gracious to Israel if He was to keep His promise to bring the Messiah into the world through them. Uh, Remember, the covenant was made. Moses comes down off of the mountain, and what does he find the people doing? Before he even comes down off of the mountain, he hears the sound of them worshiping an idol. So, there is a similarity between the covenant made with Adam and the covenant made with Israel. They're both covenants of works, 
But there is a great difference. God was merciful to Israel. God was merciful to Israel. He did not vomit them out or cast them off in the moment that they sinned. He would have to be gracious to Israel again if he would keep his promise to bring the Messiah into the world through them. The question is this, how would the guilt of sin and uncleanness be addressed under the Old Covenant while God passed over sin until the Messiah was brought into the world through them to accomplish true and eternal redemption? That is a very important question to ask. I'll ask it again. How would the guilt of sin and uncleanness be addressed under the Old Covenant while God passed over sin until the Messiah was brought into the world through them to accomplish true and eternal redemption? The animal sacrifices, these animal sacrifices that we are now considering were the means that God prescribed for the Old Covenant people of God to deal with the guilt of sin and uncleanness under the Old Covenant. Can you see it? The blood of bulls and goats did not atone for sin in an eternal way, but in an earthly way, in a covenantal sense, so that God might show mercy to Israel under the terms of the Old Covenant. The book of Hebrews says all of this so clearly. If you wish to know more about the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, you will only have to read through the next book of the Bible after Exodus. In the book of Leviticus, we learn all about the offerings that were to be offered up for sin and for uncleanness and out of gratitude for God, to God. Listen, for example, to Leviticus 1.1. The Lord called Moses. Notice, uh, this happens later. Uh, The general instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system are laid out in the book of Exodus. But in Leviticus Uh, Things are clarified. More detail is given. Leviticus 1.1 The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Did you hear the purpose there? He, he's to bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. He's offer it up there so that he might be accepted before the Lord. There at the tabernacle. There under the old covenant. I continue. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's the altar that we are now considering. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, and on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That is, that is Leviticus 1, 1 through 9. In this way, the Israelite worshiper would be accepted before the Lord, not in an eternal and permanent sense, otherwise these sacrifices would not have been offered up continuously, but in an earthly, temporary, and covenantal sense, you see. This was about purity before God in the covenant. This was about being cleansed from sins and in the covenant. Now I add to this the point that I made earlier. True worshipers of Yahweh, true Israel, 
the ones who were circumcised according to the heart and not the flesh only, the remnant, if you will, what did they do as they brought these bulls and goats up to the altar to offer them up there? Did they not also look beyond the blood of the bull and the goat? Did they not also look beyond the altar? Did they not also look beyond the, t- the tabernacle and all that it signified to Christ? Did they not also believe in the promises of God that were previously made to Adam and to Abraham that were entrusted to them? Yes, of course they did. Many in Old Covenant Israel, if they did worship at the tabernacle, went through the motions. They had a dead kind of religion. They didn't have faith in their hearts. They went through the motions. And this is the kind of worship that David says that God doesn't take pleasure in. Yes, you you hear David speak this way in the Psalms. The Lord doesn't take pleasure in burnt offerings. You, you, You think to yourself, then why did he command that they be offered up, David? Well, David is simply making the point that God is not interested in His people going through the motions, we are to have a broken and contrite heart before the Lord. We are to offer these offerings up under the Old Covenant, trusting in Christ, trusting in the promises concerning the Messiah that were first given to Adam and to Abraham. Notice that the the, the promises concerning salvation through the Messiah, they were given first to Adam and to Abraham. That is significant. And then when was this law added? Much later. The law of Moses was added later, not to do away with the promises previously made, but in order to bring further clarity to them. You understand? This is the way that Paul speaks of the relationship between the old Mosaic covenant and the covenant that was made with Abraham before him. Let us now briefly consider the bronze laver or basin. It is mentioned briefly in 38.8. But I will read the more extensive description of this labor found back in 30 verses 18 through 20 so that we might remember what it was for. There, back in Exodus 30, 18 through 20, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting, that is to say, into the holy place, and once a year, the high priest into the most holy place, or when they come near to the altar to minister, that is the altar of burnt offering, which we have been considering, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. Here in Exodus 38, we hear of the construction of it. It's briefly mentioned, but... In Exodus 30, 18-20, we have more instruction. In fact, we will hear of this bronze laver again in the following chapter. The laver was a large basin containing water, and it was for the priests to use. They were to wash their hands and feet with that water before ministering in the holy place and before offering up sacrifices to the Lord at the altar. And if you remember, in Exodus 29.4, we learn that when the priests were ordained or consecrated as priests, they were to be bathed in this water. Do not miss this. Regularly, daily, the priests were to wash their hands and feet in this water as they ministered before the Lord in the holy place and before the altar. But in Exodus 29.4, we were told that when the priests were ordained or consecrated, they were to be bathed. And I think it is right to say that they were bathed from head 
to tow at the time of their ordination. Exodus 29.4 says, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. This was to be done at their ordination. What is the meaning communicated by this bronze basin filled with water? If one wishes to approach Yahweh and to minister before Him, he must be washed. He must be washed. He must be cleansed, therefore, by water and by the blood. And those who are familiar with the Bible, and especially the New Testament, likely had many things pop into their minds when I mentioned, together, the water and the blood. In the courtyard of the tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel, what was there? There was water and there was blood. To enter the holy place and to enter the most holy place, one had to be cleansed with water and with blood. I want you to think of Christ, brothers and sisters. Think of His baptism. Why was Christ baptized? Have you ever wondered that? I know why we are baptized. In our baptism, do we not uh, have a symbol which signifies the washing away of our sins? Why was Christ baptized? Not to wash away sin, nor to signify the washing away of sin, for He had none. He was baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. For at that moment... Jesus was beginning His public ministry as our great High Priest. He was washed with water from head to toe. He was baptized by immersion, just as the priests under the Old Covenant were at their ordination, to signify His ordination, His consecration, as our great High Priest and Mediator of the New Covenant. It was then, at His baptism, That the Father set His seal upon Him, speaking from heaven and pouring out His Spirit upon Jesus, the Lord's anointed. That is to say, the Messiah. And when Christ finished His work of high priest and mediator of the new covenant, He ascended into the most holy place, not the one made by hands, but the one in heaven. And He did not enter into that most holy place, the heavenly holy of holies, without blood, did He? No, just as the high priest who ministered under the Old Covenant could not enter into the most holy place without blood to sprinkle on the altar, neither could the high priest and mediator of the New Covenant enter into the heavenly holy of holies without blood. He took blood too. But what blood did he take, brothers and sisters? Did he take the blood of bulls and goats with him to sprinkle upon the Ark of the Covenant? Is that what he did? No. He entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven, having been washed with water, consecrated as our great high priest. And the blood that he took with him was his own blood. He offered his own blood for the true and eternal forgiveness of sins. And he took it with him, if you will, into the heavenly Holy of Holies. It was because he shed his own blood, having finished the work that the Father gave him to do, that he was permitted to enter into the heavenly Holy of Holies, the thing of which the earthly Holy of Holies was a sign. So the blood he offered was very different. It was his own. Listen again to Hebrews 9.22. This time I'll continue to read. In fact, I failed to quote this earlier, so it's the first time you're hearing it in this sermon. Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, Under the law, under the law of Moses, almost everything 
is purified with blood. Did you hear it? Under the law of Moses, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So under the Old Covenant, everything is purified with blood, and this is how sins are forgiven. The writer of the Hebrews is very clear. This isn't eternal forgiveness of sins. This isn't the cleansing of the conscience. This is forgiveness of sins on earth and under the Old Mosaic Covenant. This was the way that God dealt with sin as He patiently endured with rebellious Israel so, that, so as to bring the Messiah into the world uh, th- through them. He provided the sacrificial system so that the people might be cleansed in an earthly sense and restored under the Covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, says the writer of the Hebrews. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, what is he talking about here except the the tabernacle on earth, to be purified with these rites. But, listen carefully, brothers and sisters, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, under the Old Covenant, everything's purified with blood, and it was right, and it was good, and that's how God designed it to be for a time. But when we talk about the reality of these copies, that is to say, heaven itself, better sacrifices are needed. The blood of bulls and goats won't do it. And then the writer of the Hebrews goes on to explain, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, that is Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Brothers and sisters, I can't say all that could be said in this brief time that I have before you. I will say only this, water and blood. Water and blood. When the priests ministered at the tabernacle, they had to be cleansed with water, and they had to come with blood. They had uh, to have water wash away their filth and blood to atone for their own sins and the sins of the people. Our great high priest, Jesus the Messiah, entered the most holy place in heaven, having been washed with water, consecrated as our great high priest, and having poured out his own blood, not for his own sins, for he had none, but for the sins of many. Water and blood... I want you to think of how water and blood flowed from the, from the side of Christ when that sword pierced His side. And think about the Christian life also. When we are drawn to faith, we at that moment have the blood of Christ applied to us and the cleansing of our consciences before God. And in that moment we are made priests to God according to 1 Peter 2.5. And how are we publicly consecrated as priests to God in the kingdom of Christ through the water of baptism? It is by the blood of Christ and through the waters of baptism which signify our cleansing in Christ and our union with Him that we now have bold access into the very throne room of God, the heavenly holy of holies. Put it all together, brothers and sisters. These things were pictured ahead of time in the tabernacle of old covenant Israel and they have found their fulfillment in Christ and in all the benefits that He brings us even to this present day. I hope you can see how our eternal salvation in Jesus Christ was pictured in the tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel. 
It was especially symbolized by the activities of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. The priest would have entered into the courtyard. He would have walked past the brazen altar. He would have been washed at the laver. And only then would he have entered the most holy place and not without animal blood. What the high priest of Israel did year after year on earth, Jesus the Messiah did once for all. And he entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven, of which the tabernacle was a copy. The way there was opened wide through his shed blood. And it was opened up not only for him, but for all who are united to him by faith. Thanks be to God. Friends, I must ask you this by way of conclusion. Are you united to Christ by faith? Do you trust in Him? Do you believe in Him to the saving of your souls? You know, it is one thing to study the book of Exodus and to see how this tabernacle of old preached the gospel by signifying Christ who was to come. But at some point, we must ask the question of eternal significance. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that man has fallen into sin and deserves eternal condemnation, but that God has shown mercy and has provided a Savior, Christ the Lord? He lived for sinners. He died for sinners. He rose for sinners. He also ascended for sinners. He ascended into heaven so that where He is, we might be also. You must believe in Him. If your sins are to be forgiven, you must turn from your sins and confess that Jesus is Lord And this confession is to be made publicly through the waters of baptism. Friends, I want you to know that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray for those who have faith, who have been baptized upon profession of faith, that you would strengthen the faith they have. Lord, I pray that you would deepen our understanding of the Scriptures, especially deepen our understanding of the Christ, that you have provided for us. May our love for him and may our love for you grow and grow. And I pray for those who do not yet have faith in Christ. Perhaps they are our children. Perhaps they are others who are visiting with us today. I pray that you would draw them, O Lord. Give them that precious gift of faith. Draw them to faith. Justify them. Adopt them, O Lord. We ask that you would increase our number in this way. I pray that you would help us all to speak of Christ Jesus crucified and risen in the hope that is ours in Him. Lord, you are merciful and kind. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we give thanks to you, O God. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.